funny. I really did. I forgot about blowing you off. Well, I don't know what to say. Sorry. Um, Sorry. If you'd have told me earlier, I would have apologized earlier, but I guess the Lord was in me blowing you off. So... And it wasn't that he just blew back our meeting like 10 minutes. It's like, like he, he was supposed to be there like at 11, and I was going to take him to my favorite taco shop in San Diego, which is right down the street from our church. It's, got the, it's awesome. And, uh, and so I'd worked out real hard that morning, and, and uh, I was trying to wait, and he didn't get there at 11. 11.30, I text him, oh, I'm going to be late. Oh, I'm going to be, so I'll be there at 12.30. 12.30 came and went. I'll be there at 1. 1.30 came and went. I'll be there at 1.30. The only reason I gave him 30 minutes, I was just mad at him. I didn't have anything going on that day. I just, I just wanted you to feel bad, just to be honest with you. So, uh, no, I've grown to uh, love uh, Pastor Micaiah very much and his wife, Jane. I've known Jane a long, longer than I've known Micaiah and, and, uh, because she's from the San Diego area. And I, I'm, I'm always uh, a little bit uh, intimidated, if that's the right word, to speak at a new church, but no time more than in a church plant after the first year because I know what it's like. And here's what I know it's like. I know that you love Pastor Ermler very much. He's a young guy. He's got a lot of energy. You're, you're not exactly sure if you agree with everything with him yet. You're just really glad he's here and he's in your life and he's excited. And he's that way with or without coffee. I know that feeling. I'm thankful for that. As a special speaker coming in on the, first serv- or on the anniversary service, you just hope not to say anything that makes people mad. That's all you're hoping for. I remember we had our first guest speaker, and uh, man, we, it was a wonderful night in San Diego. It was raining cats and dogs, and he came in, he spoke for us. He made about three families mad that didn't want to ever come back to our church. So if I make you mad today, I just want to confess right now, I don't know what I'm talking about except the truth of the gospel, and let's just be friends, all right? So let's just do that. And... Um, I'm thankful for the opportunity to be here. If you have your Bible with you today, would you find the book of Nehemiah? I know your church has been studying now the the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah, uh, it's about uh, one-third of the way through your Bible in the Old Testament. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. If you find the book of Psalms, turn left a little bit, and you will find the book of Nehemiah. I want to congratulate you on one year. Great group of people here. Beautiful setup and and everything going on here. I'm so thankful for it. I encourage you in church planning, get in on the ground floor. Get in early and invest your life. We have a family only. We have one family left in our church from our very first service 12 years later. And uh, um, man, they love the Lord. They were there at the first service and the husband helped usher then and he still helps usher now. And they make our church, it's the Elam family, they make our church a great church. And I hope when you come to San Diego and visit us, you ask me to introduce you to them. They're a great family. I hope you'll get in on the ground floor and just be faithful and serve and be a blessing to the church and to the people of really this area, San Jose and your pastor and his wife and and others here serving other people. And I think you'll be blessed. I'll tell some stories about that through uh, the message this morning. Um, You ever notice that people can take things way too far? Is there anybody like that here? Can you take stuff way too far? I have to confess, I'm a way taker, take things way too far. I do that. I'm a, I, I do that. I, I, that's how I am. I, my wife will make one mistake and I'll remember it. Like we've been married uh, December 
26th, we were married 20 years uh, this last year, and uh, we were excited about that. And I, I can still remember stuff from our first date that I'll make fun of, and that's a long time ago. Anybody else like that? Can you take stuff too far? You're, <laughs> there's like three of us, and the rest of you are thinking I need counseling, which I totally understand. I do. I get that. I accept that. I was, I was reading this week, and, and um, I'm a football fan. I like football. I'm a Charger fan because they're the only football team in California that matters. And, uh, and do, do you guys have a football team up here? I, uh, I don't even know. I mean, I'm a Golden State Warrior fan. I like them, you know, but I didn't know you guys had a football team. Um, the Raiders, the Raiders. That's right. You have the Raiders up here. Uh, and, uh, sorry, I'm just messing with you. I, I don't even know what football is. Um, but I was reading this week about a New, New England Patriots fan, and the guy actually has Tom Brady's helmet tattooed on his head. He got, the reason I know about it is because he got arrested and he got put in jail this week. So, so his uh, picture is all over the Internet, and it was on one of the websites I was reading. And I just thought, dude, you took that way too far. Way too far. I mean, good grief. Okay, Tom Brady, good quarterback, bad quarterback. I'm not even going to argue that point. I'm just going to say, you don't get people's helmets tattooed on your head. I think there's a problem that that guy maybe fails to understand, and that is this. He's living for the wrong thing. He's living for the wrong thing. Now, I, I love football, and I love the Chargers, and I know people up here are 49er fans, Raider fans, whatever. I don't have a problem with any of that. I think that's great. That's wonderful. I, I went to the Poinsettia Bowl this year, and, and I'll watch maybe the Super Bowl as long as the Seahawks win, and, uh, and, and, and I'll enjoy some of that. But, you know, the reality is if you're going to live for the future, you've got you to gotta kind of be strategic in how you live. So I want to talk to you this morning from the Bible, from the book of Nehemiah, how you can live for the future. So if you found Nehemiah chapter 1, would you look in verse number 1, and we'll read it together. The scripture says, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Helkiah, and it came to pass in the month of Chislu in the 20th year, and I was in Shushan the palace. And Hananiah, one of my brethren, or his brother, came, he and certain men of Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. They said unto me, The remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in a great affliction and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. And it came to pass when I heard these words that I sat down and wept, and mourned certain days, and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven, and said, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God, that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him, and observe his commandments. Let thine ear now be attentive, and thine eyes open, that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant, which I pray before thee now, day and night, for the children of Israel, thy servant, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against thee, both I and my father's house have sinned. I want to speak to you this morning on the subject of living for the future, living for the future. Father, I pray you'd bless the reading of your word. I pray that you would allow us to be a people attentive uh, unto it. And we pray that your spirit would work in our lives and you would change us and speak to us during the message today in a great way. In Jesus' name, amen. 
about 150 years before this time, Nehemiah's ancestors were in the town of Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had come into Jerusalem. It was a sign of God's judgment, and we won't deal with that this morning. But he had come into Jerusalem, and he had captured Jerusalem, and he had taken the vast majority, and really the totality, we should say, of all of the well-to-do, well-educated, well-spoken people in Jerusalem, and he had taken them back to his kingdom. He had taken them back to Babylon. Well, there had been, in that 150 years, a changing of the guards and uh, since Nebuchadnezzar's reign, and now the Persians are running the, the world, or be, they were the world's sole superpower at that time, and Nehemiah was working in the palace, and he was serving there. He hears from a remnant of people who had went to Jerusalem and they had come back to Shushan the palace. Nehemiah hears uh, uh, or asks in verse number one and two, he asks his brother Hananiah, he says, hey, could you tell me what is the condition of Jerusalem? What's Jerusalem like? What, what are the people like? I, I've never been there. I've never, I've, never, I've never experienced it. Tell me what it's like. And Hananiah said, oh, it's in a bad way. He said, you need to understand something. The, the, the city is just in disrepair. They've been back. There's been a remnant back there for about 70 years. And, and these people in Nehemiah chapter 1, his brother saying, for the last 70 years, the walls have been broken down. Now, you got to understand something about city walls in an ancient world. They were their last line of defense. And they were primarily, for Jerusalem, they were the first line of defense. So if the wall's broken down, your first line of defense isn't there. And your last line of defense isn't there, meaning you have no defense. When the wall is broken down, the people would... would, would Here's what would happen. Remember, it was a subsistence living. They, they couldn't run down to the local Target and get some groceries, or they couldn't run to Home Depot and, and, and get some wood. They had to build and grow and, and nurture what they had. And so they would, they would grow a garden, and about harvest time, as they were preparing to harvest, pillagers would come in from the outside area, and they would steal all of the vegetables that were there. And they would take what was there. And people would come in, and they would steal cattle, and they would steal children, and, and, and they stole all of these things, and, and it was a very difficult life that the people had to live in Jerusalem. Well, the scripture says that Nehemiah hears that, and, and he, 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 verse number four, he hears the condition of Jerusalem, and he falls down, and he weeps, and he mourned, and the Bible says certain days, it could have been a five-day, a seven-day period, and he fasted, and he prayed before the God of heaven. I think there's three essential truths that we see about living for the future. I hope that you're like me. I hope that you don't want to live your life, and when you die, your influence dies too. How many of you really say, I want to live beyond my life, or I want to influence beyond my life? If that's you today, would you raise your hand with me? I want to have a, a greater impact than just today. I want to have a greater impact than just this moment. I want to have a greater impact. I think there's a lot of people who want to do really great things and accomplish great things. And so we try a variety of things and we try a variety of ways. And we're just not sure how to really make the greatest impact or really how to live for the future. Well, we see firstly this morning in verse number five that if you want to live for the future, you've got to have a first a desire to please God. 
you got to have a desire to please God in verses 5 and 6. Nehemiah had this one fundamental desire, and his desire was, his, his baseline desire was, he wanted to please God. And we see that expressed in verse number 5, out of a heart of praise. He said, O Lord God of heaven, great and terrible God that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. Nehemiah had a, a heart of praise. And can I tell you this morning, would you listen carefully? If you're a note taker, would you write this down? Would you put this on your Bible? Would you tattoo this on your head? It's a little bit. Yeah, it's, it's all right. Well, I'm trying. I'm trying. It's not that far. It's okay. It's all right. But maybe on your forearm. His praise was focused on the character of God, not on his circumstances. His praise was focused on the character of God, not on his circumstances. I'm 42 years old. I, I, I am an entrepreneur at heart. The greatest struggle I have is not starting new things. The reason I love your pastor is because he's excited about everything. And I think that if he hung around me long enough, I could get him to do crazy, weird stuff. I have a group of friends, and we'll go places, and they'll be like, hey, who's in for? And before they even say, I'm in, I'll do just about anything except jump out of an airplane. My 18-year-old daughter, she graduated high school, and for her 18th birthday, we, we got her a, a, a thing to jump out of an airplane. And she said, Daddy, will you do it with me? Absolutely not. I said, I won't even go and watch. Matter of fact, my wife said, well, I'll go with you. My wife was saying that because my wife is a manipulator, and she was trying to manipulate me, and she said, I'm a man. I'm man enough. I'll jump out of an airplane with you. I said, I'm woman enough to stay and be your mom. I'll be fine. And they keep talking about it, and they keep talking about it. Now in my house, they're not even allowed to talk about it in my presence. Now they just have to be gone. And I'm like, where are they? And then, then I'll find out later they jumped out of an airplane. And I'm paying for it. I'm there. I just, I'll do anything but jump out of an airplane. I, I have that desire. But one of the things I've learned in my life is I like to start new things. I like to do new things. But every new venture, every new business, every new church plant, every new ministry has great days when the circumstances are going well and you can barely contain yourself you're so excited but you know what they also have down days every marriage there's times in marriage and debbie and i we get to speak publicly about marriage all the time and and there's days when our marriage is just over the top and i feel truly like it's a little bit of heaven on earth and then there are days when my mother-in-law visits i love my mother-in-law and i love for her to stay away I'm kidding, but you know what I'm talking about. You know there's good times and there's bad times. If you want to live for the future, it, it comes with a desire to praise God. And that, that heart of praise is not dependent upon my circumstances because there's going to be some people here this morning that between now and next year, you're going to face some great tragedy. But can I tell you, God is still worthy of being praised. There's going to be some people that get some bad news and the cancer is, 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 is at work again in your body and the doctors give you just six months to a year. And that's going to happen with somebody probably in this room over the next year. I'm not a prophet or anything. I'm just saying with a group this size and this many people, there's going to be some major tragedies. There'll be some health tragedies. There'll be some financial tragedies. Somebody might lose a job between this year and next year. Can I encourage you this morning to understand this fundamental reality that God is worthy to be praised, not because your circumstances are good, but because his character is good. Southridge has had, it's been a great year, but not every day has been a great day. 
I remember when we first started and we were there and we were in a dumpy little rec center and it was ugly and it was dirty and it stunk and, and, uh, and, and we were in the heart of San Diego. And I remember some of the horrible, difficult times. If you're not careful, your life will focus on the negative as opposed to allowing your, your life to focus on who Jesus Christ is. As opposed to focusing on all that he has done for us. And then I want you to notice he, his desire to please God and to, and, and to honor God out of a heart of praise not only came from a heart of praise, but notice that you see this morning a meaningful confession in verse 6 to 9. The scripture says, now Nehemiah is praying to God, let thine ear now be attentive and thine eyes open, that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant, which I pray before thee now day and night for the children of Israel, thy servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which... We have sinned against thee, both I and my father's house have sinned. And he goes on to say in verse number seven, we have dealt corruptly against thee and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the judgments, which thou commandest thy servant Moses. Remember, I beseech thee the word that thou commandest thy servant Moses, saying, if you transgress, I will scatter you among the nations. Look down in verse nine. But if you turn unto me and keep my commandments and do them, Though there were of you cast out into the uttermost part of the heavens, yet will I gather them from thence and will bring them unto the place that I have chosen to set my name there. I want you to notice his desire to please God only, didn't only have a heart of praise. It had a meaningful confession. We have a statement around our church, and it's this. If you mess up, fess up. You know, a lot of people want to be right with God today. A lot of people want to have a relationship with God, but they just don't want to confess that they've done anything wrong. And friends, can I be honest with you? The Bible says that we've all sinned against God, that we've all done wrong, that there is none righteous, no, not one. And you say, Chris, do you stand up there sanctimoniously saying, I've done things wrong? Yeah, I do, but not sanctimoniously because I've done them wrong too. If you come to our church, you would hear rather candidly and rather clearly that as the pastor at Canyon Ridge Baptist Church, I need grace in an amazing way because I struggle with sin just like you struggle with sin. And I have problems with anger just like you have problems with anger. And men, I have, I have problems with lustful thoughts just like you have problems with lustful thoughts. And, and, and I struggle just like you struggle. The Bible teaches us this fundamental, this, this, this great truth, and that is that we all are sinners before God and the only hope we have of eternal life, the only hope we have of a relationship with God is to repent of our sin and to ask Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died for our sins, to come into our heart and to rescue us from ourselves, putting all of our dependence on Him. So you're not really going to live for the future if you reject the one who holds the future in the palm of His hand. So we need to be a people who are first have a desire to please God. And then we're honest about who we are. We're honest about where we are. That we have truly this, this understanding about ourselves that we have indeed wronged God. We have sinned against God. And the Bible even says it this way, that we were born in sin. We were born in a condition of sin, and we need a Savior, and God sent His only Son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sin. Nehemiah confessed the sin of the people to God. He said, God, we have sinned against you, and his desire to please God was born out of a heart of praise, but it was also born out of a reality that needed he needed to confess the sin of his people, because if he would confess, then his relationship with God could be made right. 
Then in living for the future, from this text, we learn that, that we need to please God. But we also learn in verses 2 and 3 and verse 11, which we'll look at, we, we understand that if you're going to live for the future, you've got to have a motivation to live for others. A motivation to live for others. Verse number 2, the scripture says that Hananiah, one of my brethren, came and certain men of Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said, the remnant uh, that are left of the captivity there... And the province are in great affliction and reproach. Uh, the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Now, you've got to understand something about Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a Jew. He was born a Jew. His mom was a Jew. His dad was a Jew. His ancestors, as I said earlier, had left, Persia, or had left Jerusalem via captivity 150 years earlier and, and, and were living in the capital. Nehemiah had never been to Israel. Never been to Jerusalem. He lived in the capital city of the Persian Empire, which is Shushan. Now, Shushan is called the city of the lilies. It got its name because of the, the, the fields of sweet-scented iris flowers that surrounded the city. It was a beautiful, beautiful city. It smelled amazing. I have friends in other parts of the country, and they'll fly into San Diego in April, May, June, and July, and, and, and they'll, they'll smell the jasmine that just grows everywhere. I have some outside the front door of my house, and we're getting ready to plant some outside of our church just because I love the smell of it. And they'll land, and they'll say, I can smell jasmine everywhere in this town. Well, that would have been similar, except it would have been the sweet smell of lilies with Shushan the palace, or the city of Shushan. And, and, and as people would come in, they would smell it. It was a beautiful city. It was set between two rivers, and it was overlooked by pristine mountains. I mean, the topography and the geography of the place was absolutely breathtaking. It wouldn't be dissimilar from living in a place like San Jose or San Francisco. Debbie and I, we had the privilege on Thursday night of staying in Sausalito, and then we walked the Golden Gate Bridge on Friday, and, and it was a wonderful time. What a beautiful area. I live in a beautiful area in San Diego. I absolutely love it, but my parents live in Amarillo, Texas. How many of you have ever been to Amarillo, Texas? All right. If you've never been to Amarillo, Texas, what you need to do is you need to get on a, a four-by-eight sheet of plywood, all right, flat, because that's how the land is. It's flat. There's not one hill in the entire region. It's flat. And then turn a heat lamp on to until you're about 140 degrees. And then get an industrial strength fan and blow that. And then just sit down and go, this is my existence till I die. Then if you start getting comfortable because they have a lot of cattle there, you need to get some cattle smell going on. And I'll let you figure out how to do that all on your own. And people say there, oh, it's the smell of money. Well, it's a smell anyway, but it's not the smell of money, I can assure you. And then they go to a place like Amarillo or like San Diego. They leave Amarillo. They go to San Diego. They go, man, this place is amazing. Or they come up here to the Bay Area and they go, this place is beautiful. This place is amazing. So Nehemiah lived in a beautiful place. Jerusalem would have kind of been like Amarillo. More hills, but it would kind of been like Amarillo. It would have been a place you didn't want to live. It had no walls. It had no protection. It had no industry. It had no means of making money. There was, there was no security that was there. there was, it was not a place that anybody wanted to be. So Nehemiah lived in a beautiful place. Nehemiah was a man of great position. Verse number 11 of chapter 1 says that he was a cupbearer. That means he was a, 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 a lot of people say, well, he tasted the king's food to make sure he was never poisoned. Well, that was officially what he did, but really he was in charge of the people that did that. 
It was a position of trust because the king's life rested in his hands. It was a position of power because in the Persian Empire, no king ever wanted to see people. They were very committed to, to privacy. They believed familiarity bred contempt. So, so nobody really saw the king except for the cupbearer. He would see the king several times every day. He would see the king many times a day. He had the, the, the opportunity to visit with the king and to talk to the king. As a matter of fact, historians tell us it was the third most prominent position inside the Persian government. The third most prominent position. And Nehemiah was willing to give all that up for a group of people he had never met. And notice the earnestness of his request. We won't read this, but if you were to turn over to chapter 2, verses 4 and 6. Four through six, he stands before the king and he says to the king, King, let me go and build a wall around the city of Jerusalem for a group of people that I don't know, that I've never met, and I'm only going to go there because that's where my ancestors are from. Can I just tell you that somebody who's living for others? If he was living for himself, you know what he would do? He'd probably ask the king, hey, king, why don't we do this? Why don't we send a group of people to Jerusalem? Because I'm the third most powerful person here. Could you do me a big favor? Could we send a group of guys back there to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem? Would we be able to do that? Could we get some engineers? And, and, and could we get some construction guys? And could we take some cranes? And could we go there? And could, could we build this place for, or, or these walls for the city of Jerusalem? It'd be a, a huge favor to me. I'd be forever indebted to you. But Nehemiah didn't say, King, let somebody else do it. Nehemiah said, King, let me do it. You ever watch one of those movies or you ever, you ever read one of those books and they tell an inspiring story about people who, who lived for others and for, who did for others and you think, man, that's, that's really awesome. That's really amazing. What, a, what an amazing story that is. How, how many of you know what I'm talking about? One of those inspirational movies or books. Yeah, we read those books, but so often we're glad somebody else did it and not us. Nehemiah wasn't reading a book worried about somebody else doing it. Nehemiah was excited at the opportunity or the potential to be able to do something on his own. And this was a major endeavor. In his book, Thinking for a Change, John Maxwell says, If you're successful, it becomes possible for you to leave an inheritance to others. But if you desire to create a legacy, then you need to leave something in others. When you think unselfishly and invest in others, you gain the opportunity to create a legacy that will outlive you. When we live for others, our impact outlives us. When we live for ourselves, our pleasure, our purpose, our desire, then our impact ends when we end. When we live for others, our impact outlives us. I'm reminded we had uh, our church started and, and we didn't have nice seats like this. We had rickety old brown chairs. Honestly, every time you moved, you could hear them. These are the most comfortable church chairs. I wouldn't want to move because these are the greatest chairs ever in, in the history of church. This is, the, I mean, it's so comfortable. To be honest with you, I almost fell asleep over there and I didn't, uh, and I don't normally do that. I was like, these are great. Uh, we had these old rickety brown chairs and I'm not kidding you, they were, they were built during, I, I think, the Korean War and, uh, 
the city of San Diego has some money problems. They don't always build new things or buy new stuff. And, and uh, they said we could bring in our own chairs, but we couldn't leave them there. And, and they wouldn't let us even donate chairs to them because that had to go through a bureaucratic uh, chain of command that they said no because the other recreation centers didn't have them. And so they felt like we would have been privileged. And so anyway, we had these really bad chairs, really dirty floors. Nobody really wanted to come to where our church was. But uh, one Sunday, a guy walked in. He was a short little guy. He's about 5'5". Five five. And I met him after the service, and he's one of those guys that when you look at him, he looked at me with an intensity that kind of bore right through my eyes. And I was like, what, does he want to wrestle or something, you know? I mean, dude, I'm just trying to be nice and be a blessing. And he shook my hand, and he squeezed it a little bit too hard. I was like, I'm not a girl or anything, but I thought, wow, what would you do that for? So... It's weird. So come to find out, he was a captain in the SEALs, and so intensity was kind of who he was. His name was Phil, and and he and his wife came. Well, they had been Christians, and they came to our church, and he asked me a lot of questions, and he said, well, I'm not sure if we're going to come here. And then finally, they came to our church, and, and they joined our church, and they said, we want to be a part of this. And so they came. And and Phil is still, he and his wife, we call her Mrs. Saladin, um, they are still so highly regarded in our family. I was thinking about people who live for others this week, and I thought of, of Phil Saladin. You know why they live for others? When we started our church, Debbie and I, probably like your pastor, we didn't have any money. We didn't tell people that. I'm not telling you to understand that. We just, we just didn't have any money. We moved from Texas to San Diego, and our income was $1,800 a month. And if you've been to San Diego, you understand that's a lot of extra income to live on. So... Matter of fact, our rent was seventeen hundred a month. We had a hundred dollars left over for anything every month to do whatever we wanted to, like eat, gas, electricity. We we and 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 obviously you can tell by me I'm emaciated and still trying to recover. Um, but uh, Phil came in and we were talking. He said, well, "What's it like for your daughters being pastor's kids?" And I and and I stupidly and arrogantly said, uh, "What are you talking about? My daughters don't have any problems. I'm their dad. They're the most blessed kids on the face of the earth." I'm talking to a Navy SEAL captain. He laughed about as much as you just did. He was like, "That wasn't funny, Pastor." I'm like, "Oh, well, I thought it was, but okay, yeah, whatever." He said, "Okay," and he walked out. Next Sunday, he came. His wife said to our kids. And said, Judith, Natalie, come with us to the car. Went to the car. They had gotten them two giant bags. In the bags were every candy you could imagine. In the bag were stickers and coloring books and I don't know what else, dolls, jump ropes, a Fiat. Uh, everything was in the bag. And Judith and Natalie came and said, Daddy, Look what Mr. and Mrs. Saladin got for us. And, and we opened it up. It was like Christmas in October, and that was great. And we hugged, and I thought, oh, well, that's done well. November came. They did the same thing. December came. They did the same thing. They heard that I liked Mountain Dew. I don't like Mountain Dew anymore because it's bad for you. No, I don't like it because it's good for you, and it allows you to gain weight, but that's why I don't like it. And so I was preaching in a message, and, and I was talking about how much I enjoyed Mountain Dew, and, and I showed up one week, and I had 12, 12 packs of Mountain Dew in my car. I didn't sleep for a year. 
You say, Pastor Chad, are, are, were, they, were they living for others because they bought you stuff? No, they were living for others and they were, they were, they were motivated for others and their, their legacy lives on and they're still highly regarded, not because they bought us stuff, but because they loved us in a tangible, real way. In a tangible, real way. I was thinking of, uh, we, we were uh, moving one time, and Debbie and I had to move because the house we were renting for $1,800 a month uh, or $1,700 a month was being sold. It was kind of at the peak of the, the real estate market in San Diego, and our landlord said, we're selling your property, and, and, and we, you got to move. So we found another house to move, and somebody announced it at the church that we were moving, and on a Saturday, our whole house, we were moved out of one house and into another house in about an hour and a half because there were 60 people there that were just being a blessing to us that day. Just being a blessing. We have a guy in our church. His name is Bill Griffith. Bill Griffith is, is the most interesting man you'll ever meet. He has a degree in theology. He, he didn't get married until he was 55 years old, so he lived his life to go to school and to work and to travel. He's biked over the entirety of Europe and, and just one of those interesting guys. He has two master's degrees in science, I think one in molecular biology and one in molecular physics. And, and he was working at a job, and, and he quit his job to go to seminary because he just felt like God wanted him to go to seminary. And, and now he says he's too old to work. And so so he doesn't work anymore, but he comes down to Canyon Ridge Baptist Church every single day, and he works seven hours a day, every day. And he says, Pastor, I want you to yell at me like you would all the other guys that work here. I said, Bill, I'm not going to yell at you. I don't yell at them. He's like, come on, do it. So every once in a while, I'll yell at him just to make him feel good. I just, I, whatever. And then I give him a hug. like, Bill, I'm only yelling at you because you asked me to. I really don't have anything to yell at you for. I mean, good grief. You could quit, and it would hurt us, and it wouldn't affect you at all, except you'd have more free time. And, and, but, Bill, we have this guy in our church who's 90 years old. His name's Paul. And Paul doesn't have any family in San Diego. He lives in a little trailer not far from our church. And, and Bill is Paul's chauffeur everywhere. I say, Bill, why do you do all that for Paul? I mean, we could call the city and they could bring a bus or they could bring somebody in. He goes, Pastor, I, I, just, want, I just want to live for other people. And then Bill, you got to know something about Bill has a hyper-honesty problem because he'll tell you everything going on in his heart right then. He'll go, a lot of times I hate doing it, Pastor, but I, just, I hope that one of these days when I'm that old and that crotchety, somebody will help me out. And I'll look at Bill and I'll say, no, nope, nobody's going to do that for you. No, not at all. Why? Because Bill really just wants to live for others. Can I tell you, if you want to live for the future, if you want to invest in the future, if you want your life to impact, just like Nehemiah, you have to be motivated to live for others. You know how Southridge is going to go to great heights in the next year? It's because the people assembled here this morning say this, I'm not going to live for myself this year. I'm going to live for other people this year. I'm going to invest my life for others. Would to God that everybody in this room this morning said, I'm going to be a Bill Griffith. Now, don't quit your job because that would affect the tithing. But, but if everybody in the room said this morning, I'm just going to do everything I can for the cause of Christ over the next 12 months through Southridge Baptist Church, then I'm going to find out, Pastor, what can I do? Can I be here early and set up? Can I help set up? I mean, at our church, when we were starting, set up was the biggest thing. It was the funnest thing. It was the activity of the week because we would see how fast we could do it. So we'd have 50, 60, 70 people at set up, and we would get a, we could set up an entire church auditorium with chairs, banners, just like you guys do, and our record was 17 minutes. 
Now, nothing was plugged in, and when we plugged it in, it was all wrong, and everything blew up. We had to buy new stuff. But our record to get it set up was literally 17 minutes. Our teardown record was seven minutes. And we sat up for seven years, 2,965 times. We sat up, and we tore down at Canyon Ridge. And there were a group of people that were there every single time. Why? Because they were motivated to live for others. I'm really speaking to the church family here. If you're a guest here, we want you to get on board. But if you're part of the church family, really invest in others. And then we learned the third thing here from chapter 2, verses 11 to verse number 18, where Nehemiah, he goes to Jerusalem, and he's there, and he's there three days. And then if you read that passage, which I know you've studied, so we'll forego the reading, but so I'll just tell you the story. He wakes up in the middle of the night, and he walks around Jerusalem, and he sees the utter disrepair of Jerusalem. He sees how, how horrific that city's condition really is. And he determines in his heart he's going to do something great, but he knows that it's not going to happen without sacrifice. And so we learn this reality that if you're going to live for the future, you've got to have a willingness to sacrifice. Would you listen to me clearly? You've got to have a willingness to sacrifice. Now, I don't know if you know this, but because I do this, I have to tell you or I lose my card. All right. I'm a CrossFitter. All right. And the one thing you learn about people who do CrossFit is they tell you they do CrossFit or they're never allowed back in the gym. All right. I do CrossFit. I love to do it. I talk to people all the time. My wife does CrossFit. My daughters do CrossFit. People in our church do CrossFit. Matter of fact, I, I, I want to buy the gym, the CrossFit gym. And, and I, just, I just love it so much. But I talk to people all the time and they'll say, well, I, I wish I was in better physical shape. And I'll say, well, you got to be willing to sacrifice a little bit. And while we're eating donuts and drinking coffee, they'll say, where do I start? <laughs> well, I'm not going to tell you not to eat donuts because we know that Jesus would have us eat donuts. He really would. There's nothing better than an apple fritter over devotions, let me tell you. And, and, uh, and I'm for it. I saw Krispy Kreme in here, and let me tell you, if I wasn't preaching, there wouldn't be any donuts here probably. And so, so there's got to be a willingness to sacrifice, a willingness to sacrifice. My goal on my birthday next year, I'll be 43 years old, is to do 43 pull-ups in a row. You say, well, how's that going to happen? Sacrifice. Our goal is to build a great church and to be a part of something great. How's it going to happen? Sacrifice. I, I, I want to see a great business built. Well, it's going to happen not on vacation. It's going to happen because sacrifices are made. Uh, I, I want to see my kids do really well in life, and, and, and I want to set them up to do well. Well, that's not going to happen without sacrifice. Understand this. Anything that, that is successful happens with a strong measure of sacrifice. Nehemiah was willing to sacrifice. He left Shushan the palace. He goes to the difficult city of, uh, of Jerusalem, and while there, he's attacked, he's lied about, he's questioned. He had only a small group of co-laborers to help him, and his construction project in many ways turned into a military project. And it was a difficult time, and he only was able to accomplish what he accomplished via sacrifice. People say to me all the time, Pastor, I wish I knew as much of the Bible as you know. I say, you can it's not reserved for pastors. It's open to anybody. You can, but it's going to take a measure of sacrifice. Churches are built in sacrifice. I remember Debbie and I, we sold our house in Amarillo, Texas. We lived there four years. When we sold it, we made 500 bucks. 
from the house. Isn't that great? I mean, you should be excited about anybody who makes 500 bucks. You should be more excited that we left Amarillo. Um, we, we came to San Diego, and we found that first house. And to be honest with you, it was a dumpy house on a main road, and, and it was dirty, and it was filthy. And we didn't, have, we didn't have a team of people helping us. I wish we did. And, and uh, church planning has evolved a lot over the last 10 years and as far as people's understanding of it. And we thank the Lord for that. And we didn't have a fancy place for an office, so we put the office in the garage. And we called it the garage. Our garage had all of our office stuff and our desk in it, and I would counsel in my office. And every once in a while, my wife would be doing laundry, and she'd come out, and people are broken down, weeping over their her washing machine because we were doing counseling out there. We had every meeting in our house that first year. Every meeting was there. I mean, we, we did an outreach event. It was at our, we started at our house. We did uh, a special event. It was at our house. Why? There was just my wife, really. She just had a great willingness to sacrifice. We didn't have any money. We had people that would show up, and we'd have, like, Bible studies at our house, and uh, people would show up. I'm remembering this one guy, Mike, and Mike, Mike was a postman. And Mike would show up, and he, for some reason, when he first came, he thought my wife was his servant. He took that idea of serving one another in Christian love, that biblical principle, to meaning everyone should serve him. He, he didn't understand that that idea is serving others. He thought others should serve him because his idea was if everybody's serving somebody else, then nobody is serving really at all, so everybody should serve me. I mean, that was his mentality. So he would walk into our house, and he would go, hey, Debbie, can you make me a peanut butter and jelly sandwich? And she would look at me, and I'd be like, I don't know, can you? Because <laughs> I would have said no. And she was like, yeah, Mike, I'll get that for you. Finally, I had to tell Mike that we're out of peanut butter, and we don't have jelly in the house anymore because we're trying to lose weight. And uh, we'd have another guy that would literally walk into our house, and he would just open the refrigerator door, Pastor, and he'd start taking out stuff that he wanted. He'd start like, dude, are you paying for that? He goes, oh, you mean the church doesn't buy this? <laughs> I said, the church doesn't have money to buy this, and now neither do I. And so there's a willingness to sacrifice. We had fires in 2002. We had our biggest day ever. We'd been there about nine months. We had a big day, and on that Sunday, we had 131 people. Our walls were packed, everything in our meeting place. That afternoon, or the next Sunday, rather, uh, we had these major fires. 300,000 acres were burned. They, they evacuated all of military housing. And we're at home, and this family shows up at the door and that had been to our church twice. And, and we open the door. And we say, hey, how you doing? What can we help you with? They said, well, we want to see if you have any room for us. I said, well, do you need room? I mean, they have motels. They're putting you guys in and everything else. She goes, yeah, we thought about going there, but we'd rather stay with you. And I thought, well, that's weird, but okay. And they came in, and they had two small children. And the husband and the wife said, we're tired. We're going to go take a nap. You watch our kids, and you buy our meals, and you do everything like that. And, and I just really thought, man, my wife is really great because she's willing to sacrifice. We bought a building four years ago. If you've never seen our building, you should look it up sometime. It's shaped like a clamshell. It really is. It looks like a spaceship came out of heaven. We didn't believe in Mars until we saw our building. Or we believed in Mars, but Martians, I should say, uh, until we saw our building. And, and uh, it's really unique. Well, when we bought it, we had to remodel it. So we remodeled it. We put fences up. But people kept stealing our stuff. So I came up with this bright plan that our staff should sleep on the church property to prevent people from stealing stuff. So for nine months... Our assistant pastor had to sleep on the platform. <laughs> he was single at the time. He always says, Pastor, if I was married, would you still make me sleep there? I said, well, one of us would have to, and it's not me. 
Now, why? Because I'm the pastor. That's why. Because I left Texas to come here. No. And he slept there with no walls. I remember, Pastor, our first service. I thought a lot about sacrifice and the sacrifices that we have. But I thought about our music. How that hearing the music at Canyon Ridge for years was a sacrifice to everybody who came. I'm not exaggerating. We weren't good like you guys are. I mean, our music, we had these CDs, and this was like the pre-MP3 play. Remember how CD players used to have, have to warm up? Like you'd hit it until you'd have like a 10-second delay. We call it dead noise, and, and you're just sitting there, and everybody's kind of looking at each other. And then they'd play these songs way too fast or way too slow and songs you didn't know. Our church was so new and so different. We were singing an old gospel song because it's all that the guy leading the music knew. And we were singing an old gospel song, uh, Faith is the Victory. And in the middle of the song, the CD switched to the middle of Amazing Grace. Right in the middle of the song. Sunday morning, a lot of guests there, and I'm standing there, and people, are look, people aren't really looking at me because nobody really knew except the song leader. We finished the song, Faith is the Victory, to the tune of Amazing Grace. I mean, it was just absolutely horrific what went on there. And people came to me afterwards, they're like, something was different. And people go, something's different about your music. And I would always say, yeah, it's horrible. It's just horrible. They're like, something's different about you. I'm like, I'm horrible. Yeah, I'm horrible. Like that, like that, your first service, and you look back and you cringe. To be honest with you, I look back at last week and cringe. I'm like, oh my word, what is going on? Our nurseries were in kitchens on top of stoves. Literally, we're putting babies on top of stoves. Listen, don't hate too much. It was warm. Uh, just had to be careful they didn't get too warm and melt anything there. And game rooms, a willingness to sacrifice. I look at your the crowd this morning in your church family. I know there's many guests here, and it's a special day. It's kind of like the church's birthday. And when you think of the church's birthday, when you think of any birthday, you think of the previous birthdays or the previous time, but you also look forward to what's in store. Hopefully, every year you take those times to evaluate. And as I look at your church, I see the greatest days ahead. I see a church that's going to make a tremendous impact in this area for the cause of Christ. I really, really do. This is amazing what God's doing here. But can I tell you, it's not going to happen without some sacrifice. It's not going to happen without people living outside of themselves. Can I be super candid with you? It's not going to happen unless you get a little bit uncomfortable. If you're not uncomfortable, you're not growing. I do a lot of fitness training and I help a lot of people. And a lot of people want to improve their life physically without ever being uncomfortable. They're like, I, I want to I get better, Pastor, and I want to lift like you and look like you and do pull-ups like you, do all that stuff like you. I just don't want to get sweaty. Can I tell you, you can't move forward without sacrificing? Can I tell you that the greatest days in your life are going to be when you invest in the future through the local New Testament church, through this church, if you'll invest your life in it and be a part of it and say, Pastor, what can I do and, and how can I be a blessing and how can I encourage you? And you know what? It might be a bag full of candy for the preacher's kids. You say, well, they don't like their kids having too much candy. That's why you give it to them. Because their kids need candy. Especially on Sunday afternoon and Sunday night when mom and dad are tired. It'll help mom and dad have a much better night. Give them caffeine candy. And find some way 
to sacrifice and invest and live for others. That's what Nehemiah did. We read about the building of the walls, and we often think, man, what a, what a great story that is, and what a great engineering feat, and what a, what, a great, what a great strategy, and what a great administrative skills he had, and what great faith he had, and all of those things are true. I'm a philosopher at heart, but it didn't start with his administrative ability, and it didn't start with his faith, and it didn't start with his engineering skills. It started that as the third most powerful man in the world's sole superpower at the time, he heard about the condition of a place, and he fell down, and he wept, and he prayed, and he fasted, and then he just got up and said, I can do something to help those people. And I'm willing to sacrifice to help those people. So maybe for you, that means joining up with Southridge Baptist Church and you become a nursery worker and you help out in the nursery. You've got to follow some guidelines and do all that stuff, but maybe you just become a nursery worker. It certainly means that we're willing to sacrifice a little bit to give, for the fur- not to give a little bit, to give what God tells us to give for the furtherance of the gospel. And if you're young, start giving now because it's the greatest life there is. The greatest life there is. There's a willingness just to sacrifice. I don't know where our church would be. Well, I do know where our church would be if people weren't willing to sacrifice. We'd still be in a dumpy rec center with people coming into our home asking for peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. But because a group of people were willing to sacrifice, God's done an amazing work. And God wants to do a greater, would you listen to me, a greater work here. We think of sacrifice, our minds cannot help but think of what the songs we sang this morning were about Jesus Christ who sacrificed for Christ or sacrificed for us. He died so that we might have life and have it more abundantly. If you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Savior, our prayer is today that you would repent of your sin and you would ask Jesus to come into your heart and to save you today.